Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and Pop Culture Podcast coming to you from the Not-So-Solitary Fortress. That is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, Graham McMillan and I return after what feels like a very long hiatus to talk about our respective trips to New York Comic Con and Japan, to also discuss the firing of Chuck Wendig from Marvel, and to ponder the past and future of the American comic book industry. This is a two-plus-hour episode, with almost a full hour of it being me recounting my impressions and experiences in Japan, so what not spill where? Comments on this episode are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. Send us your questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com. And we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Graham McMillan, hello! Hello there, how are you? Fucking hell, man, I tell ya. I'm I'm okay, I'm okay. That's a good start. Yeah, isn't it? That's a good start. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, it's just shit. I think I was just tromping along all merrily until yesterday... Man, at like, I don't know, whatever time it was, like 11 a.m., I just started going into just such intense pain. It was like kind of stupid. And the hilarious thing was I really was trying to work through it because I had walked to work that morning and it my back, its lower back had started to bug me. And it was this really tight pain. And I was like, ah, you know, I've been doing I, I, uh, some personal training recently and Thursday morning was my session. And I was like, God, I wonder if I'd like strain something, but it didn't feel like a strain. It felt like a tight pain, but I got to work and then it seemed to go away. And I'm like, oh, okay, maybe it was like my shoes are bugging me or something. I don't know. So, so I'm at the seat and work's kind of starting to get busy, which is not surprising because it's Friday. It's the end of the week and it's been relatively quiet, but this crazy job comes in and I'm trying to deal with it. Actually, there had been other things that I'd had to deal with and in the back, my back was bugging me during most of it, but I'm like, it's okay. It'll probably just pass. I can work my way through it, which was good because it was literally like dealing with uh, employee drama and stuff like that. So I get all that stuff resolved and I'm just trying to take care of this job and I'm just like, my back's hurting and I'm just trying to focus and I'm like, oh, God, uh, yeah. it was hilarious. At one point, my next door neighbor comes over, like from the next office, and she's like, "Jeff, are you okay?" She's like, "I'm used to you swearing when you're when you're stressed out, but you've been doing it constantly." And I'm like, no, "I'm fine, fine, thanks. Jeff, Jeff you you can't be this stressed." And you're like, exactly. "I'm not stressed. Exactly, I'm not stressed. I just I just wish I was dead right now." So I made this decision to go to the emergency room and um wait 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 I didn't know that part. Oh, didn't didn't I say that part? Yeah, cuz I mean I was 90% <laughs> sure of what it was. But I 90 60% I was like this this is probably some sort of crazy ass pain, you know, like it felt like kidney like the way people describe kidney stone pain. And the amazing thing is I had had a kidney stone before and it was nothing like this. I had had like I had like, most... like as, as much as like a reasonably good kidney stone as could be had oh, before. I I think so. In that it was like felt there was no pain the only pain I got was from lying around for a week on painkillers. Like you know, that was that was it. Like a tense back. So this was, oh my god. So I caught the cab, and of course the cab is almost comically slow getting to the ER. And I come into the ER, and 
there's just hijinks after hijinks after hijinks. But the best part was, like, they sh- they're like, okay, we're going to admit you. Like, there was just, like, five minutes of talking to me. They're like, we're pretty sure we know what this is. So they throw me in a little <laughs> room. They're like, take off your clothes, get on the bed, put the gown on, no clothes underneath. And I'm like, okay, great. And the point of me, because then they leave. And so I gotta, I'm wearing my business clothes, and I'm trying to undress myself, and it's just like, oh, God, oh. Every time I like <laughs> bending over to take my pants off, and then of course it's that classic: your pants catch around your ankles, and you can't kick them off, so you got to reach down. I'm like, oh, oh god, oh god! It's so like eventually, like they're like, okay, we're gonna get you set up on some painkillers really soon, and about that time, Edie shows up, and she's just like, oh my god, uh, she's like, she's like. We've been together for 15 years. I've never seen you like this. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> you know, I'm oh, really shit, trying Jeff. to keep it together, <laughs> but I just can't stop moaning and only intermittently writhing. And finally they get some painkillers in me and I'm like, okay, okay, God, okay, this is, this is a little bit better. And they did oh, a CT shit. and they're like, yeah kidney stone so the thing that's amazing is is this kidney stone is like four millimeters which of course is nothing but apparently got lodged and was trying to kill me the other uh kidney stone that i had was like 10 millimeters or something like that which is apparently enormous so of course that worked to my advantage because it cost me no pain but they're like well it's too big you, we're going to have to break it up or else it's yeah, going to come out. I, that's why I remember you having a kidney stone because you did have to break it up. Yeah, exactly. But this one, the, emer- the ER doc was like, yeah, so, um, well, you'll talk to your urologist on uh, Monday. We've got a phone appointment for you. But, uh, like, he, you know, he couldn't be arsed. I mean, you know, they've got people who've got, like, you know, lightning rods sticking out of their head and gunshot victims and stuff. But he, I, he was like, yeah, yeah. So you know, here, here's some pain pills, and uh, just go home, and uh, here's, here, we'll get you a little, uh, we'll get you a little uh, urine uh, uh, filter, and uh, just, just pee through the filter and try and collect it so that we can, uh, you know, figure out what's wrong, you know, and what you shouldn't be eating that that your body's like collecting your kidneys. And I'm like, you know, I'm just like, lipotripsy, lipotripsy. And they're like, nah, nah, you'll talk with, you'll talk with your urologist too soon to say, but you know, you can just pass this. You'll probably just pass this. And I'm like, I don't think that that'll feel so great. It's like, oh yeah, no, no. I mean, it's going to feel terrible. <laughs> It'll yeah. feel terrible. Yeah, 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 totally. And I'm just kind of like, what the fuck? Then give me the, what the, was it too expensive for you guys? Like, I'm not good enough for you to turn on the little ultrasound to, like, turn my, you know, thing into gravel? Or I don't know how it works. But all I yeah, know... Maybe, maybe it'll be worse. Like, maybe, you know, last time you didn't feel anything and they're like, it's fine, we can do this. But, like, now that you do feel something, if they did, it'd feel worse. Maybe. I don't know. They might be being nice, Jeff, is what I'm saying. No. I mean, that's not what, that's not the scoop that I got from this guy. Frankly, everyone else was, was very sweet. And at one point, one of the nurses came in and was like, so, do you guys know what sex it is? Which I thought was pretty funny. And also... <laughs> Whereas I'd be like, fuck you for making fun of my pain. Oh, are you kidding? I mean, they're, they're ER nurses. They, they were, they were like, um, it was great. They came in and they're like, okay, we're going to get you on painkillers really fast. And I'm like, I really appreciate it. I wasn't feeling too good. And they're like, oh, we know our, t- our stand is right around the corner from this room. So you were making a lot of noise. And I'm like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. And I'm like, don't, don't. We know how painful it is. But I just love the idea. I'm like undressing in the next room being like, oh. 
and everyone there is like, eh, kidney stones. I got kidney stones. What do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm calling it kidney stones. I think he's got a hernia. All right, uh, well, let's see how this <laughs> Yeah, they're taking bets. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so. I do like that apparently you, the hospital you went to was the one from MASH. <laughs> it was. It was. <laughs> So wait, so where are you now in in this cycle? In this... Like, are you are you feeling okay? Are you in pain? Uh, no. Like, what's going on? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. Cause so I came home and um, you know, basically got home and there. It, it it's funny how like I've had some experience with this this year, where like the doctors and the nurses are kind of on two different tracks. You know what I mean? Which sort of makes sense. But like, sure. so the doctor was like, yeah, go home take uh, Tylenol and ibuprofen and then if the Tylenol is not doing it for you we're going to give you some Percocet but uh, you know do the other ones and the ibuprofen will help bring down the swelling which is important you know and then we've got another drug that will help with the swelling which will hopefully dislodge the stone and blah 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 the person who gave me my pain meds was like okay I just want to get you ahead of the pain so it's like I'm doing this and this and this and then we'll give you some pain pills to go home and she's like take take the pain pills so so i got home and i was like yeah i'm not i'm gonna skip over the tylenol and i'm gonna go right to this percocet and um it was god damn that stuff is just so i was basically barely able to move off the couch you know and at a certain point i crawled into bed like probably about i don't know 4 p.m and then i crawled out for like half an hour and then went back to bed Oh, God. Until, like, 8 the next morning. So this stuff just hammered me alive. And so today I'm like, okay, okay, I get the message. No need to be crazy on the Percocet since it just turns me into a drooling zombie. So for most of today, it's just been ibuprofen, and I've had no pain whatsoever. I was going to say, you sound surprisingly good. Yeah. all these stories, like, you sound fine. Yeah. And obviously... You know, everyone knows pain presents orally. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so also true. how you sound. Jeff. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, there's a, there is a lot to it, particularly in my case. Oh my god! And uh, well, and even last night, I think when I went to bed, it was like through the gauze of the Percocet, I could feel my back starting to hurt again, and I was like, oh god, no. Well, okay. I'm assuming we're recording and we're going to let the listeners hear all of this. Oh, right? yeah, I think so. I think In so. that case, I want to share the emails that we had over the last <laughs> Because whatnots. First of all, hi, uh, it's the first episode back in a few weeks. And it's like it's been more than a month since we recorded. So yeah. it's, it's super, it seems super long to us, but we've really only took like one week off in, in October in terms of release. Um, but... You, Jeff, you and I were emailing last night about whether we'd be recording today. Yeah. And last night, like, from what you just said about how bad you were feeling, mm-hmm. like, you downplayed that a lot in emails yesterday. Oh, yeah. Like, like you really, really, really did. Like, you, you basically, you, you, you know, you told me how bad you had felt. Mm-hmm. But you're also like, you know, I'll, I'll be fine tomorrow. And then today, you were totally like, no, every, everything's fine. Mm-hmm. Including, what nuts, you'll, you'll appreciate this. Jeff said that he hoped that he passed the kidney stone while recovering <laughs> because, and I quote, what a Patreon extra that would make. <laughs> Jeff, here, 
Here's my question. Did you mean the audio, or did you mean that you're going to give the kidney stone to someone oh, in the battery? I, I meant the audio, but actually, I personally would be willing to pass along the kidney stone, no pun intended. If I if it moves during this recording, I will happily pass it along to the. To hold you like rewards tier. Yeah, tier a uh, tier in spelled many ways. Like yeah, that that uh, yeah. I I think I think I'd just go right down the path until we found someone who would want it i'm sure there'll be someone right uh <laughs> i don't know like does it contain dna could someone clone a jeff from it i don't know i don't know that's actually a really good question i mean i don't think so i think you know by and unless they're super awesome with it but by and large the kidney stone is all this stuff that you take in from your body that you you can't that you don't need right yeah that that you right exactly but then for whatever reason your kidney doesn't do a great job of passing it so the particulate builds up um uh-huh. so i mean it tends to be one of a certain number of things you know like calcium or the thing that's crazy is it it usually my understanding is it falls in under two categories usually like the very healthy stuff, like weirdly, um, some vegetarians and vegans tend to get um, tend to get kidney stones because there's a buildup from like the uh, the uh, some of the minerals and I guess spinach, um, <laughs> spinach or tomatoes or tofu or oh weirdly. Oh my god! I really, I really want you not to be lying with that. I know. I love the idea that spinach and tomatoes make people like get kidney stones that's amazing it it it, it is true there's 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 got to be doctors who can who are listening to this that that can tell us oh i'm i'm sure and i i I love the idea that that listeners everyone's like ah yes graham is is has the healthy skepticism that of from talking to jeff that only a veteran jeff talker can have like i'm like yeah i believe it's but it there's also the other side just know that that at some point someone would tell me something like that and my brain would turn that into fact and right. I would then like just repeat it as fact and someone would be like I'm sure that's not true and I would vehemently defend it that is well <laughs> do you know what I mean true. yeah completely. like no I'm yeah, definitely yeah. like I'm 100% right Jeff yeah yeah well I had also heard the same about like um, you know like fatty meats and fried foods also built yeah like that's like that makes more sense right, exactly than everyone's spinach, like yeah you know? yeah so it's it's apparently it's a little bit of the extremes, which is why like three years ago when I had my first kidney stone, a it didn't feel like anything, and b I was like, I don't have to worry about this. This is the ongoing conversation, sadly, between Edie and I is is her being like, okay, so how are you going to change your diet? I'm like, not at all. It doesn't yeah, have to change at all. It's fine. It's great. I'm about as healthy as you can be. Don't worry about it. I just need to exercise a little bit more. So, Jeff, I love you dearly, but you were you were the opposite of as about as healthy as, as you can be. <laughs> no, really, like let's just think about the last few years. Which one of us has had more medical drama? Okay, Graham, I, I am not particularly healthy, Jeff. Uh, you're not, but let me tell you, you're eight years younger than me. You know what oh, I mean? God, you're basically you're saying like. Oh, believe like me, dude. Years, once you start crossing good... 45, seriously, save yourself. Oh, shit. The That's fact like that you've been working out regularly has been a good thing for you. So the, oh, it'll probably terrible. take the edge off, but it's oh, not going to take terrible. that much of an edge. Let oh, me tell you, man. man. Oh, well, that, that's something to look forward to. Yeah. Oh, God. Hey, Jeff. <laughs> yes. Um, it, 
obviously this is a sad thing that's happening to you, but I'm also really happy that happened this week and not like, you know, any time in the last month because you've been like, it would have been much worse if it happened when you're on your trip. Yes. Which is my segue of saying, tell me all about your trip. I'm super fucking curious. Shouldn't we technically talk about New York Comic Con first because, uh, or does that move us too much into like comics? Comic strip? Actually, okay. Yeah. So let, let's explain to whatnots. Like I said before, like this is the first time we recorded in a month. We we released a couple of episodes in October, but we haven't recorded since September, since the end That's of September. Right. Good grief. Because the first weekend in October, I was in New York for New York Comic Con. That's right. And then the three weeks after that, you were in Japan. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, let's start with New York Comic Con. Yeah. It. This is going to sound like weird hyperbole. Mm-hmm. But I think New York Comic Con might have replaced San Diego as, like, the movie and television show. Really? Yeah. Um, it felt like there was... It's not that there was a lot happening there in terms of movies, at least. Like, there was a lot happening there in terms of television. Mm-hmm. But, um, but there's a weird thing that happened this year at New York, which is... The studio was brought like extended previews. Mm. So I'm there for I'm there for THR, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the I'm I'm just going to guess days now, to be honest. Um, the Wednesday night there was the first two episodes of Titans, the DC mm. Universe show. Right. Thursday there was the first 15 minutes of the movie Mortal Engines. Mm-hmm. The Friday there was like 15 minutes of X Men Dark Phoenix. Right. Which is a long time away from being released. Mm-hmm. Um, the Saturday, there's a Hellboy trailer, which still hasn't been released anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to say that... Was, oh, uh, Saturday also had, like, more than half an hour of, of the Spider-Man animated movie. Mm-hmm. Like, all of a sudden, they, like the studios were like, oh, we thought you might want to actually see some of the finished film for a number of films, mm-hmm. which was super weird. And so it felt much more like a... This is because because San Diego this year, I want to say there was like an Aquaman trainer trailer and a Shazam trailer and that was it. Right. In terms of like movie footage, mm-hmm. um, and that no that like the, the studios came out for New York this year, which was really really strange. Um, but I think it I, it could be they were more prepared with footage, mm-hmm. or. People are. I, I. I think I might have said this at the time, but I think the studios are sort of coming away from San Diego now. Mm, you've mentioned that before, there, yeah. There, there is a sort of pullback from mm-hmm. the, from the San Diego of it all, but they still want like you know the buzz. Mm-hmm. They might have just gone, oh well, we'll do New York instead. But it felt much heavier mm-hmm. um, for movies this year, which was really really interesting. Huh. Um, Comic wise, it was. It was probably the best New York Comic Con I've been to in terms of like Artisali. Mm-hmm. Uh, for once, it didn't feel like they were either, you know, completely separated from everything else or cramped into a tiny space. Uh, like the, the the New York Comic Con last year was terrible in terms of like it felt like they tried to basically cram everyone into space that was at least half as small as it should be. Mm. Uh, and this year was not that bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt like there were a lot of creators there. It didn't feel like there's an incredible amount of news there, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to say that the biggest news was probably like the Bendis line announcement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a long time ago. I'm kind of like, what? What? What did come out of that? You know? It's well, like... there the, the was Wonder Comics, mm-hmm. um, which is Bendis like young. I was going to say young adult readers, but it's not. It's like Bendis comics, basic kids. 
mm-hmm. and Marvel announced like a new Avengers mini, which is the the follow up to No Surrender by the same writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a weekly book by Mark Wade, Jim Zub, and, and Ali Ewing. Hmm. And oh god, Paco Medina and Sean—I can't remember his last name—as artists. Um, and I get like I'm sure there were other comic announcements, but I honestly can't remember them. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was not a heavy news show for comics, right? But it was a very heavy show for creators. Mm-hmm. There were a bunch of creators there, um, and it was a very heavy news show for gossip. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably the most gossipy con I've been to. Wow. R- really? Like, really weirdly. Hmm. Um, and I'm trying to think of a good way of saying this. The most gossipy show, and also the show where the gossip seemed to be really shoddily sourced and with agendas. Uh. That makes sense? Sure. Um, yeah, I, like there were a lot of people giving like variations on the same rumors, and a lot of people just saying things that, like, even on the face of it, was clearly untrue. Wow, <laughs> and really? I was like, this is this is really weird. This is the weirdest show hmm. uh, for that. I I don't. I was going to say I don't know why, but that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because it was very targeted, like towards or against various publishers. Mm, mm-hmm. You know. Like, there was a lot of Creator X has had it with Publisher X. Mm. A lot of that. Hmm. Um, that, honestly, I'm not sure if it's true. Mm-hmm. And it's much more of that ilk than it was, like, so-and-so is working on such-and-such comic. Because mm-hmm. you know, normally there's a lot of that gossip that goes around these shows. Right. You know? You know, uh, you, uh, you know so-and-so is going to be working on Wolverine when the regular series launches or so-and-so is going to be working on a reboot of Daredevil or so-and-so is going to be working on like I honestly can't even think of a DC property that isn't running or, or has been announced anymore right um, but you know there's a lot of that sort of thing mm-hmm. at this time it was much more have you heard what's terrible <laughs> like this terrible thing has happened and you're like huh that's really weird and then you go and talk to someone who would have knowledge about it mm-hmm. and they're no that's complete bullshit Wow. Huh. Um, and there was a lot of it. Hmm. Like, really a, an impressive amount. Hmm. Um, and I'm not... Like I said, like, it's it's obvious why that exists. Because mm-hmm. it's people basically trying to smear other people. Mm-hmm. But I also don't get why they're trying to do that right now. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, that's the part that sort of confused me. Mm-hmm. Um... But yeah, there, there was a lot of a lot of gossip going around. It was a really weird show. It was a really odd show. Mm-hmm. Um, fun, but also weirdly exhausting in a way that, like, even San Diego wasn't this year. Hmm. Uh, and part of that was my work schedule. I was one of like two people from THR there, as opposed to like one of six people from THR there. Right. You know. But part of it was also just like it was a really weirdly scheduled show. Mm-hmm. The I don't know if I've I've gone over this before, but New York Comic Con happens like across New York. As opposed to like San Diego, where it's all in the convention center, or like at the hotel right next to the convention center. Right. So it happens in Javits Center and also Madison Square Garden. Oh really? I didn't realize those, it expanded those, out to those are like the two main locations uh-huh. and they're that close. No. Right? Mm-hmm. And there's also other locations. Really? 
and at least twice I went to the wrong location. Wow. For an event. And like I found myself running across New York. Oh god. Being like, I've got ten minutes, fuck. <laughs> um, and I will not say who, because I don't want to get them or me into trouble. Mm-hmm. But there was definitely a case where like the kindness of particular people saved my ass in a really dramatic way. Wow. Like really, really dramatically. Mm. Um which was lovely and I'm glad they did it mm-hmm. but it's one of those things where you find your like you know you're in Madison Square Garden and you're you're sitting down and you're like okay like you know this this panel starts in 20 minutes uh you know I you know I'm I'm ready I've got myself all set up and I checked my schedule and I was like I'm supposed to be at the convention center it's not at Madison Square Garden at all mm. <laughs> like there was one morning where and thankfully it was the first thing in the morning and it was early enough but I went and I I was like I was told in advance like your name's going to be on this the the list get in the back because mm-hmm. there's there, you can go in I'm trying to think of a good way of saying like you can go in the entrance everyone goes in or you can go in like the press entrance but they're very different locations mm. wow. and I went to the press door and they're like you you you're not in the list and I basically pulled out like do you know who <laughs> yeah seriously uh well, except I didn't I basically pulled out like I'm I'm from Hollywood worker I swear my name is supposed to be on this list. Like, I really promise you I'm not shitting you. I'm supposed to be on this list. I was told I'm on this list. So-and-so said I was going to be on this list. And they were like, well, the Hollywood Reporter, sure, you'll come in, but you're not on this list. Wow. And I, I like, sitting down, and I'm, like, setting everything up, and I'm getting my laptop open and everything. And on my laptop, I'd left, like, a, a window open with my schedule for the day. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, you know, room one in, in the Java Center. And I was like, oh, shit, that's why my name wasn't on the list. <laughs> I'm entirely the wrong location. <laughs> I'm like, you know, and everyone else is preparing, and I'm like, I've got to go, I've got to go. And the security guards, because the exit for press was the same as the entrance for press, right? Thought that like I, so I was up to something because I was trying to leave, and the thing wasn't going to start for twenty minutes, right? And they're like, where, where are you going? Where are you going? And I'm like, I'm really in the wrong place. I have to go. You have to let me go. I've got like fifteen minutes to get down to this place. I'm really sorry. Run, run, run. Wow. Yeah. And I, yeah, that. So that's like that's a real problem, and also kind of helps. It may be an incredibly exhausting show. Yeah, I'm sure. Because you're you're you if you're in the wrong place, like if you're in the wrong place in San Diego, you basically have the length of the convention center to go at most. Yeah. You know, if you're in the wrong place in New York, you could be like you know, twenty blocks from where you're supposed to be. Oof. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so yeah, that, that was the thing. It was it was like you said, like it feels like a million years ago now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's literally a month ago, mm-hmm. but because we are now living in the apocalypse. Yeah. Like, a month ago feels like a million years ago. Yeah. And because nothing really came out of it as well. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, you're like, sure, New York Comic Con, that happened, didn't it? Maybe? Who knows? <laughs> well, I think there's a lot to also the the nature of... I don't know. Maybe it's just the nature of sort of the same way that the national news cycle is this really uncomfortable flipping between formal and informal news, I guess, if you know what I mean, where it's like you've got a president who says something on Twitter and then it gets followed up on on like NBC and CNN and then everyone on Twitter is already weighed in on things, but maybe they weigh in on the coverage. And then of course the president reacts to the reaction. And then, you know, that it's, it's just like, sometimes I feel like having, 
having this weird synergy between an official news cycle and an unofficial news cycle kind of hypercharges the whole thing. And and I sort of feel that that's the way with comics as well, where either it feels like absolutely nothing's happening or so much has happened that you kind of can't wrap your brain around it. Right. And and also you can't really work out... I'm trying to think of a good way of saying like you can't work out what's news anymore. Sure, exactly. But But there is that sense of... Uh, this is not Comic-Con related, but th- this is kind of an illustration of what I'm talking about. In uh, in the absence, in, in while we've been gone, um, Chuck Wendig was fired by Marvel. Right. Um, for his social media feed. Right. God, was that while I was gone? I thought it was before I was... Ch- okay. I... I you know what? Let me look it up. Cause if I you don't mind, because I want I, I feel like we almost discussed it in the last episode or discussed it off air, or but that can't be right. Uh, let me look this up because well, we here's the thing we might have discussed it off air, but it was after we recorded the last episode. Yeah, which doesn't um, make sense. No, October twelfth. Oh, okay. So right, two days before I left. So you're right. That yeah. would not have um, been. But okay, so that happened, mm-hmm. and a it's something that unfolded entirely on Twitter because mm-hmm. Wendig announced it on Twitter, and it was about Twitter, and everyone responded on Twitter. Mm-hmm. B, Marvel just denied that it was a story. Mm-hmm. Like, did not comment on it, and if you spoke to them off the record, would basically be like, this isn't a story. Yeah. Like, you know, he, he, yet, yeah, like, you know, sure, he was like, oh, but it's fine. Like, there, there's no story here. Um, And it becomes this weird thing where if you're going to write an analysis piece, like, in, in as we're recording, it's, it's, uh, it's Saturday, the tenth of November. Right. And the day before this, on, on the ninth, uh, the Daily Beast published an article that was kind of responding to Wendix firing mm-hmm. uh, about comics publishers not essentially defending or supporting their creators on social media online. But that, like, again, happened almost a month after the 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 Wendig firing happened, mm-hmm. and feels again like a million years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, and because Marvel genuinely is, and honestly, surprisingly to me, never responded to it mm-hmm. at all. Because I honestly thought it was going to be one of those things where they've done this before. They say on a Friday afternoon it's not a story, and then on a Monday they have a statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they didn't. They just, like, stick, stuck to their, this isn't a story. Right. Like, we're, we're not going to respond to this because there's nothing to respond to. This is not a story. Um, and so you have this thing where it's simultaneously, even by that, the following Monday, felt like old news mm. because it had been everywhere in social media. Mm-hmm. But like uh, traditional media or comics media had not really done anything short of saying, on Twitter, this guy said this. Mm-hmm. And you're left with this like, did it happen? Did it not happen? Mm. Like, like what? Where where are we? Mm-hmm. Like, um, it's a, it's a really weird place to be. Um, I'm going to take a diversion here. Jeff, follow me in this diversion. I shall. I read this week, mm-hmm. uh, because I, I'm interviewing the author, one of the authors, who listens to Wait Well, by the way. Hi, Jason. Um, the American comic book Chronicles 1990s, which is a Tomorrow series mm-hmm. that literally is a year-by-year retrospective of, of the comic book industry. Wow. And Jeff, let me tell you, 
it's fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, it's genuinely amazing. You're, you might remember me completely raving about the comic book implosion book. Yes. It's like that, but for the 1990s. Oh, my God. Right? So, literally, it's just like, here are the big stories. Mm-hmm. Um, here's what happened. And it's so weird to look back at it now. A, because, you know, I was there in the 90s. I remember this shit happening. Mm-hmm. But seeing the retrospective from the distance of, you know, essentially 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, uh, seeing someone essentially put it on record as like, this happened and this was important and this happened and this was important. Mm-hmm. While we are living in this moment of, this happened but was it important? Right. Like, like, is, is this, is, is this a story? Uh, which I, no, but I genuinely feel like that's, that's something that's happening now. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a, a, a press release from Marvel yesterday. Mm-hmm. Because Marvel is putting out a series of variant covers based on the Marvel Rising dolls. <laughs> okay? So, follow this logic. Marvel Comics is putting out a series of covers advertising the Hasbro dolls created based on a Marvel animation show based on Marvel Comics. Right. Like, Synergy is an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the 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 PR for it is amazing because it does not hide at all that this is an advertisement for Hasbro Dice. Mm-hmm. To the point where Sana Amina is quoted in the PR. She gives a statement. And this is how her statement ends. I wish I had these dolls when I was a kid. The following line is, the entire lineup of Hasbro's Marvel Rising action dolls are available exclusively at Target. Mm. Mm. This is in a, a, a press release about comics. Mm-hmm. Theoretically. Right. You know, but it's just, again, this weird blurring of... Is this story? Is this PR? If this is PR, who is this PR? Who is this actually PR for? Right. Right. You know? Like, there, you could make an argument that, you know, the very next email I got was another Marvel PR email. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like, you know, we're doing one shots in, in February for Marvel's 80th anniversary. And you can make an argument that, like, that is news because it's publishing news. You know? Like, we're, we're launching these titles. Mm-hmm. But we're launching a series of varying covers featuring dolls based on a cartoon based on our comics and here's where you buy the dolls and the vice president of content development is talking about how she wishes she she wishes she had these dolls mm-hmm. feels like the super weird like blurring of the line well <laughs> you know? yeah i mean because i i feel like i suppose that the you know for such a long time i mean i feel like anyone who covers the mass media entertainment has had to really struggle with you know how you know sort of how you define the news where you define the news like you know is it just a situation of are you you know you know copying someone's pr release into a web article and you know releasing it are you adding levels of commentary to it but there is there is also this way of like yeah clearly if you ask marvel that's what they're going to consider news uh and whereas the idea that a writer for one of their books was fired for um, the editor feeling that they were being inappropriate on social media when Marvel has notoriously had 
other Marvel creators who've been right, also like who, very be, inappropriate, be, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know the type of inappropriate, and also to you know as I I was loudly saying on social media at the time of the Wendig firing, if you're a Marvel creator, does that not fucking terrify you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you can get fired off the book because of something you said in social media. But he didn't say anything bad on social media. Well, no, I agree. I mean, I, I agree. Some people are going to turn around and say that they thought that he was clearly being, you know, it's this weird, I feel not especially um, balanced position where it's like all sorts of horrible things can be said and normalized by, you know, one wing uh, and the other wing has a tendency to say things like, "Hey, you're 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 a fucking asshole," and suddenly someone's like, "Oh, mm, no, that's wrong." You know, we see exactly, little, yeah, 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 exactly. We we control you, but as soon as you troll us, like we're going to be very upset. Yeah, so which, which is very much happened to Wendick. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what it sure looked and felt like. You know, so I think that's also part of the problem. I mean, the problem. Again, because it happened from Marvel, where we've had people complaining that Marvel needed to needs to actually develop some sort of social media policy for its freelancers, um, so that they so mm-hmm. that the freelancers generally know what is considered appropriate, because it really is kind of the wild west. But the idea that you know if you're on the wild west, that suddenly someone gets put reined in for being a little too much. Considering some of the other stuff that's out there, it's sort of like, uh, really? So yeah, it's it's yeah, it's super super strange. You know, where, and, and, and to be fair, like yeah. you know, there's a lot of craziness happening on social media right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you look at the, uh, at some of of the comic skaters. Actually, it's really weirdly, I have no idea when last time you were on Twitter was, but I opened up the the computer to do this call. Mm-hmm. Um. And Ethan Van Skyver has denounced Comicsgate. Yeah. Like, I can only think of, like, cynical, terrible things about right, that. Right, me too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, like, that is, like, that's in itself fascinating, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, there, there's, 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 a, there's, there's a lot to be said. But, again, uh, you know, a part of me wants to... S- do something about and and actually at some point I was working on and then I wasn't for reasons we won't go into now. But um, talking about when to, talking about Chelsea Kane mm-hmm. and the fact that both of them had have careers outside comics and when they got fired by Marvel, mm-hmm. both of them essentially made comments that, comments the uh, the extent of there should be a freelancers union. <laughs> Yeah, like the the way that talent is treated by these companies is terrible. There should be a comic creators union, and it's not like that. It's not been attempted multiple times throughout the years, and it's always failed. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and I I think there's a story to be told about why it's failed, and part of it is, excuse me, part of it is out there. Um, the Daily Beast story had Jed and talking about. Essentially, the problem with comics is so many people want to work in comics. Mm-hmm. You'll always have someone willing to 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 replace you. You know, like you can't take a principal stand because Marvel or DC or whoever can literally just be like, okay, you don't want to do this. You know, Joe Blow will do it instead. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's what happened in the 60s with DC. Mm-hmm. 
you know, when DC creators tried to form a union, DC literally were just like, never mind, we'll replace all of you. Mm-hmm. And that's how, like, Gardner Fox just disappears overnight from, from Justice League. Mm-hmm. Big because, because DC were like, okay, you're done. Mm-hmm. Fine. We literally don't need you. There are, there are countless people to replace you. And it's hilarious in the weirdest way, like, looking back and seeing who replaced them. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, if, if I said, but if I said to you, like, you know, guess who the, the scab was who replaced Gardner Fox when you tried to unionize. It was Danny O'Neill. That seems so surreal. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it does. You know? It does. But at the same time, I mean, having read the books, I know that there are dudes like dudes who kind of seemed like the last people you'd expect to be cynical about it, like Marv Wolfman and Len Wein, who were just like, yeah, they can wipe, wipe us all out. And back then, at least with DC, the whole idea was, DC had had so much stories inventoried that they were like, yeah, they can just turn around and republish reprints, you know, because they've got 30 years of it. You know, they can just re. re sure, but they, did, but they didn't. They didn't even have to do that. No, no, no. They exactly. literally just got other creators. In. They just got younger creators, and they were like, okay, you want to write Justice League? You want to write Superman? Great. Go for it. Well, yeah, and some of those people were Ween and Wolfman, who were like, someone might as well do it, and you know, and it was it, there was also a certain amount of nihilism then too, of the comics are going to be dead in five years anyway, you know what? So exactly. I'm going to take yeah. this job and do it while I can, and hopefully I have enough of a portfolio that I can make it into TV animation or something, and I love comics, but no, it's totally like. God bless him. He's, you know, always going to be remembered as the, the the expanding earth nut. But Neil Adams worked his ass off trying to get a union going. And people were right? just yeah. not having it. And I think that happens all the way. But, you know, it happens. It's happening across all sorts of all sorts of crazy ass media. I mean, it's perhaps oh, not yeah, a surprise yeah. I mean, that you look at the, at the like Red Dead Redemption. Exactly. Exactly you know? what I was going to bring up. Where it's like the reports of how dramatically bad that crunch was, you know, bad by the nature of the comic, you know, of the video game cycle for whom, you know, the the crunch cycle is bad anyway compared to the rest of the regular world, you know, and they keep. They keep getting fed by people who are like, I want to do this. This is what I love, or I've always wanted to make video games. And it's just... But you know what's what's funny? And when I say funny, I really mean really depressing. Mm. All the people who, when the story about like the, the crunch and people working like, you know, 100 hour weeks mm-hmm. before release came out and everyone was like, this is appalling. Mm-hmm. The number of those same people that when the game came out, we're like, oh shit! I can't help myself. Gotta buy it. Sure. Well, so the the weird thing is is, is that um, a I I I un, as someone who you know ran the world's loosest, sloppiest boycott of Marvel for about nine to eighteen months, I totally get that. But B, interestingly enough, in one of the really deep dive articles, and I don't remember who, if it was Kotaku or who, but like the employees, you know, that were all of the employees that were interviewed on and off the record were like, don't boycott the game. The only way that we're really going to get paid anything like what we're worth is if there are dramatically huge sales of the game. 
So, Which is absolutely fucked, right? Yeah, that's where things get super fucked. Is it's kind of like, oh, okay, well then buy this game, but then boycott the next game, like. You know, and then, which is also part of why it was important for articles to come out later who pointed out that out of the ridiculous amounts of tens of millions of dollars that Red Dead Redemption 2 made in its opening weekend, the vast majority of that was going to the Hauser brothers and uh, the investors. But that being said, the difference, I'm sure, for those employees that were fucking ground down is is like they were ground down for three years, but now they've got like an extra fifty or sixty thousand dollars, probably before taxes, you know, that they can try and do something with, uh, you know, is is substantial. But I'm, but that's that's kind of that's kind of how I feel that the the American system really kind of has us these days. You know what I mean? It's like somebody's got an arm you know, stuck in the machine, but every time you insist on trying to turn off the machine so they can get their arm out, someone points out that turning off the machine turns on the other machine's, you know, arm eating function <laughs> for someone else. And it's just like, well, what the fuck are we supposed to do here exactly? I mean, you know, the fact of the matter yeah, is, it's, it's, you know, it's absolutely nuts. People, people are anyway, always, I brought, I, yes. I, I was going to say I ended up in the subject because I was I was I I wanted to and may still do mm-hmm. like write about the history of of how comics com- repeatedly fails to unionize because mm-hmm. it happens like wasn't really interesting is it happened in the sixties happened in the seventies happened in the eighties mm-hmm. it didn't happen in the nineties mm-hmm. uh, and what I think happened is I think Image Comics was the unionization of the nineties probably yeah. I think I think it sort of took the place. Uh, and one of the great things about this American Comic Book Chronicles book is uh, sort of putting in a wonderful context, like how quickly Image Comics like fucked its own promise. Mm-hmm. You know that it goes from we're leaving to like you know to be in charge of our own destiny to the next year cancelling other people's comics from Image because they're coming out late mm-hmm. which is exactly what all the Image uh, partners and Image founders did yep. and you have them on the record in the book admitting that they're being hypocritical well yeah you know to you know cut to two years later McFarlane and Gaiman are in court mm-hmm. you know it's like the speed at which like Image betrays its own promise is fascinating when you when you see it like literally laid out like you know this happens in 93 this happens in 94 this happens in 95 it's it's really impressive and depressing but i think image comics was the unionization of the the 90s it it took the place of of that impulse you know i'm actually going to split the difference with you um because because i think that that a, I haven't read the book. I'm sure you are probably right. But I, I do want to float a possible alternative out there, which is that once you started getting a greater degree of creator participation contracts that happened in the 80s, and once those started to pay off, like you had people who were making, you know, you went from having people who 
were basically scraping by getting nothing to people who were getting on the top selling books like 20 or $30,000 an issue in royalties, right? Now, the biggest mm-hmm. guys did strike out for image, but the fact is it kind of raised a lot of boats. And during the 90s when everybody and everything was selling, all these dudes were making pretty good bank. And so I think it's easier for there to be talk of a union every decade when somebody's getting trying to scrape by on $27,000 a year and it's a little harder for people to pay attention when it seems like everyone's making $27,000 an issue, right? Then now then the the yeah, industry but, but, really surely implodes. In the 90s. But but see that's my thing is is like then the industry implodes everyone sort of kind of gets damaged by it and there is a little bit of a oh you know yeah we're kind of screwed you know but the but clearly the entire industry is screwed like everyone can look around and see like everyone's hurting it's not like anyone's doing great like i feel like image was the next step that happens which is after people are being paid well then you actually have what the industries are worried about that you have someone people who are like well fuck it i can you know strike out on my own and start my own publishing company with five of my other buds cuz the fact of the matter is we can all afford to eat for the next 9 months until this thing gets up and going it's not a situation where it's like we have to we have to pay the rent or you know we're going to be like living on the streets or sleeping in our car while typing up our next outline for you know uh new mutants or whatever you know and mm-hmm. I, so i i feel like what you know what i think is interesting is the idea that we're finally getting to that people being like yeah you got to unionize you got to do something um, is happening, but I think that has a lot to do with <sighs> part of me almost wants to say like <laughs> America's standard of living has finally dropped lower than comics's standard of living. I don't know. You know, it's just, it's things, things are really dire for people out there, but, or mm-hmm. even more that it has a lot now to do with people being able to have a certain degree of, you know, pol- freedom. Which was supposedly the whole goal or edge to a freelancer was is that it had the advantage for, you know, both sides having a certain amount of freedom. Um, the employer to go and get whoever the hell they wanted and the freelancer to take work from whoever they could. When, of course, the, the nature of the beast is, you know, is a lot more pernicious than that. The employer had all kinds of freedoms and the freelancer has the freedom to take it. You know, essentially. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so I, I feel like the extent to which that changes, you know, weirdly enough, I think the thing that makes unionization harder in the 21st century really just has so much to do with the concept of the picket line. You know what I mean? Like the sad fact of the matter is, is back during the Great Depression, there were lots of people who wanted any job. You know what I mean? But they had to walk across a line of picket picketers to do it you know because you had to walk into a factory you know you actually had to you had to deliver you had you had to create the thing and and the strikers had ways of stopping you and there was there was a lot of threats of violence and there was a lot of actual violence but 
you know, when you get to a situation where you don't ever have to meet your editor in person, like where there's no one, no art has to be delivered, you know, in the traditional sense, I think that that's going to make things, you know, it's going to, it's, then it gets down to the realm of what's really going to move the needle. And it seems like the only thing that might, might be boycotts, again, coming from people who've managed to prop up a hobby based on, you know, their own track record of poor impulse purchases. You know what I mean? Like, at least that's how I define myself, certainly. I, I well, I, what I find, like, I think we're past the point of boycotts working. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I was saying a lot at the end of last year and at the start of this year was that I thought this was going to be like the crunch year for comics. Mm-hmm. I thought this was going to be the year where like publishers died. Mm-hmm. And I even had publishers in mind. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just not happened. Yeah. And instead you see things like, you know, Dark Horse getting like venture capital money. Mm-hmm. You know? And, and, and you see, um, Sure, like companies changing and shifting direction. Mm-hmm. Like Dark Horse's money basically came from a company that wants to part own um, uh, Marvel. Mm-hmm. You know, same when when uh, when Valium got right. bought out. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the companies putting money into these publishers essentially are just banking on well, this will be the next Marvel. Yep. Or if not Marvel. It will have like IP. It will it will source IP cheaply. Right. That will make us money, and therefore it's a good investment. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, say what you like about Dark Horse, and we have. Um, I think the Dark Horse moving forward is going to be much more cynical uh, about the 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 material it publishes, but also what it does with that material. And I I think that that has in a in a weird way been um one of the ways in which the the comics apocalypse I was expecting this year has been avoided another mm-hmm. has been in the weirdest way like as much as sales have not been good this year like the sales overall I think are down this year compared with last year mm-hmm. like you look at Marvel and their sales are back up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have no fucking idea why mm-hmm. do not genuinely do not understand it mm-hmm. but I don't think there's an audience out there who's interested in boycotting in large enough numbers. Oh, absolutely not. No, 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 no. absolutely not. No, it's, it's not going to happen. And if it, if it happens, it probably will have to happen by the creators, but to what extent, you know, how seems, not only does it seem literally like difficult to have happen the way that the capital is assembled and product is delivered these days, but it is also just, again, this amazing sign of things where it's like how far you manage to get hateful ideologues saying and doing things, you know, and with very little repercussions for like such a long time, you know, it's like, it just, it seems hard to imagine that the industry, as much as I want it to, that the creative side can come together long enough and concentratedly enough to be able to make it, in order to make it work, 
you know. I do think that it's interesting that Chuck Wendig and uh oh god, why am I blocking on her name now? Shit. Just just kid. Thank you. I'm like Mockingbird. Like it's just I'm having some some real <laughs> Mockingbird movement. Yeah, exactly. I'm having an amazingly bad time with the memory since the since the the Percocet drugs like really like the IQ hit like f- dropped by 15 points immediately. Um you know the, those I don't know. It's just I'm frustrated because they are, they're saying the right thing, which is like, wow, you know, these people need a union, but I'm kind of like, uh, you know, you guys could help, you know, and I know that they're helping just by the nature of saying things, you know, part of what they're doing is stepping out behind the curtain and being, I mean, you know, I think, I feel like Chelsea Kane's article interviews are incredibly enlightening and again, kind of get back to that, that problem of, you know, how do you kill the beast when the beast is made up of, you know, nothing but adorable puppies, I guess. You know, she's like, oh, okay, okay. every I, single I person I worked with at Marvel was fabulous, you know, but Marvel itself is a beast. Like, how do you fight that? Okay, I have two hypotheticals for you then. Mm-hmm. One is potentially an essay question, which is what should someone like Chelsea Kane or, or Chuck Wendig do? What, what do you, what do you think they could do? That would be more helpful. Well, I don't know. I I really don't. And maybe there's things that they have or haven't done. I mean, there's a lot to be said for. Um, I go back to to looking at things like, I think it was the last writer's strike in Hollywood that happened like a couple, what feels like a bajillion years ago, you know, and the fact that back then. They had, they were striking for something that was super, super, super important, which was that writers were completely getting screwed on, because there was this huge open hole on how people were going to get paid royalties for things like digital download and digital streaming, because it yep. wasn't covered under their contracts. So they, they had to strike on it. And one of the things that's always sad about Hollywood is because you've got all these different guilds, the guilds are closely related, but, ha- you know, each one talks about, like, if only the other side supported this side, things would go much better. And so I remember the Writers Guild basically lamenting that if the Directors Guild had just held out for better terms, essentially for the writers, the writers wouldn't have been, you know, getting it in the neck. Interestingly enough, and I apologize because this information is well over a decade old, so it could be wrong. I feel like the animation writers it used to be for a long time were not members of the Writers Guild. Sort of the same way that reality TV writers are not considered members of the Writers Guild. And sort of reality TV, part of why it's so inexpensive and became so... Um, prolificate uh, during the turn of the century is is that it's so inexpensive to produce in part because it's non-union. The animation writers were like, please, guys in the Writers Guild, expand your definitions to get us included. If you get us included, our lives change immeasurably. We're doing the same thing. We're writing scripts, you know, for TV shows. The only difference is Ours is in animation, which in some cases is even more challenging, but it's exactly the same thing. And the writers were like, ah, we're 
we're kind of in it right now, you know? Like, eh, as far as I know, the Writers Guild of America covers a whole bunch of different divisions. And people like Chelsea Kane and Wendig, I assume when they talk about the protections and things that they get as authors are very knowledgeably talking about the the rights that have been hard fought and won and extended to them under things like WGA contracts. They could, and maybe they have, but people pushing to try and get the WGA to bring in comic book creators, especially considering the number of comic book creators that are now creating high-selling graphic novels... You know, again, I'm totally talking out of my ass, but that could be something that could be done. I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, is that even though I say that, nothing is really going to affect Marvel and DC quite like having the editors and the editors' assistants go on strike for better living conditions for the freelancers and or themselves. You know, sure, yeah, be- because that really is where the wheels completely grind to a halt, you know, mm-hmm. and that that's where you actually have employees and you have actual unionizing happening, but um you know it if nothing else, for a lot of the editors at the at comic book publishing companies, one thing that they can say is they're being treated better than the freelancers, and that's usually not accidental. They do have things like health care and they do have things like vacation pay. And they're like, well, I do a totally different type of job and I'm actually employed and blah, 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 blah. But the fact is, is that they're well aware that they rely on the cogs that they swap in and out. Um, and it could make a huge difference to the nature of the industry that everyone, I, I was going to say purports to care about. Everyone does care about, but it's, you know that unfortunate thing, sort of like video games, that everyone cares about the nature of the medium so much that they can't wait to play Red Dead Redemption 2 or make Red Dead Redemption 2, but don't quite care enough to stop people from dying over it. You know? So... Question number two. Hypothetical number two. Do you think... Because before you were were essentially saying that, you know, people are saying terrible things on the internet uh, without... Uh, with impunity, without without facing consequences. Right. Do you think Marvel was right to fire Chuck Wendig? I first off, I think no, because I feel like I'm a big fan of you know at least it, such as it has been established in in the regular nine to five workplaces that I work in. That if you fire someone for something that's not one of your policies, it looks a lot like discrimination, especially if you're not firing other people for the same thing, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it seems Mm -hmm. to me what you need to do is, if this is a thing that is upsetting about you, to you, then you set a policy in place in the company, you let everyone know, you give them training, and then you enforce it, right? Like, I think that that's, you know, I, I had the uncomfortable situation of not engaging on Twitter with someone who thought that um, Wade's uh, GoFundMe for his uh, lawsuit, for Richard Meyer's lawsuit against him, that it was, um, it sucked that I had retweeted that because uh, the guy felt that Wade had been uh, 
acting with a malicious intent, I guess, to, to block Meyer and was, see, this is where, this is part of why I didn't engage because A, I was in Japan and B, I was like, oh God, I'm going to sound like a complete idiot trying to talk about this. But I had this like unfortunate feeling of like, no, this is, this is really wrong. And there's part of me that's kind of, you know, he was in the act of saying like, Jeff, it wouldn't be cool if someone contacted your workplace and complained about you and got you fired. And I'm like, there's already things in place at my workplace that if I was being like a misogynist racist on the internet, I probably could get fired from my firm because there are those policies in place and they're clearly stated, you know? Yeah. So it got into this really weird realm for me of like, you know what? Maybe we do just need these policies in place. And then everyone who is, you know, quote unquote, a professional can basically know what is okay to say or not to say, you know, because I can see people already flipping it and being like, what's the difference between Richard Meyer saying horrible trash and Chuck Wendig saying things that I find completely indefensible and offensive, you know, about the things that he said about Trump's Trump and Trump's supporters. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of me is like, maybe we just need to get this mess straightened out for everyone. Maybe it would be. But the fact that Wendig gets a pass and Meyer gets applauded for a lawsuit or for those people who seem to be on the other side of the looking glass that Wade is getting applauded for blocking Meyer from getting work, you know, it it just seems to me like part of part of what is fucking all of us up is unlike unlike so much of what's happening in America now where you have people consciously distorting what reality is and what fact is there's a huge swath of what's happening in the comics industry and how things get communicated for which there's no blueprint or quote unquote fact to ever exist yeah. in the first place you know what i mean mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Anyway, is this this is generally making sense, right, Graham? I mean, it's kind of amazing yes, yes. to actually talk about like comic book labor <laughs> rights after. Yeah, getting... I, I'm just I'm just throwing the stuff at you whilst you're on Berks. Seriously, I'm like, oh god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, congratulations. Uh, yeah, thank you, thank you. I I feel very fortunate. I I honestly just want to apologize for throwing all this at you and the listeners. <laughs> Uh, coming back, it's just something that have been in my head. I it, uh, I genuinely do recommend this American Comic Book Chronicles '90s book, though. Mm-hmm. It's so good. It sounds fabulous. <laughs> I, I, I've been reading that, and the other thing I've been reading is um, I'm going to mess his name, but Patrick Malloy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you know the person I'm talking about? The uh, the Poison Chalice guy yeah right have you read boys and chalice i've read some of the excerpts on the beat but not the most recent ones i guess oh i i i bought the book ah fabulous i would love to read that i would love Uh, to read it it's a bit light as Mm -hmm. it gets towards the marvel stuff sadly yeah um but like it it starts with the like the original Mm -hmm. like like uh, not even the original sorry the the um the inspirations for Captain Marvel, never mind Marvel Man. Really? Wow. Uh, and goes like forward through there, and it's it's there's just an awful lot of 
not only stuff that I didn't know, but like stuff that I didn't know was in, even involved mm-hmm. uh, in like all through Marvel Man, and then from the the gap between um, uh, McAngelo working on Marvel Man, Marvel Man ending, and then Warrior starting up, mm. like there's just a treasure trove of information. Wow, it's it's there's so much in there. It's super super good. I really enjoyed it. Wow. Uh, yeah, reading those two things, I've, I've been like, I'm learning comics history, damn it. Yeah, I, I highly recommend both those books. That sounds excellent. That sounds excellent. I will definitely go and grab those. Anyway, that's that's all. That That's my tying off of the subject. But really, Jeff, tell me about Japan. Okay. I'll, I'll tell you about Japan, and the sad part is, is that I've been back just literally a little over a week, and... It almost feels like so much of it has managed to fade between, like, the return to work and the jet lag and the kidney stones and, God, the Percocet, you know. But (laughs) uh, we had an amazing time. It truly was fantastic. And, um, you know, it's it's one of those deals where I want to try and keep things relatively concise for you and – the whatnots and at least sort of keep it semi on well, point, I guess. What we actually talked about in, in email was you wanted to basically tell me about the like the comics and culture part mm-hmm. of the trip. Right. Well, yes. Yeah. So so first off, for people like Japan is really, really amazing. And there's a lot that is like first off, for people who like reading comics, it's kind of it, what's amazing about going there is how visual uh, so much of the culture is. So it's astonishing. I mean, it shouldn't be surprising because when you start going around, we, for those who care, we came into Osaka, spent four or five nights, four nights there, three nights in Kyoto, uh, three nights in Tokyo, went out to onsens in the middle of Japan. Literally, it was just about midway in the country, accessible by like a two-hour bullet train ride. And then after four, you know, four days, two days at two different onsens, we came back and did like another four nights in Tokyo before flying home. Does that seem right? It feels like I'm leaving something out. I think that's everything. <laughs> uh, is is that um, you know, there's so many places with just the active temples and the shrines, and you just you're going around and visiting them. But the things that you sort of start to perceive about the culture, one of which is is that it's this really amazing when you read about the idea of the architecture, the Japanese architecture, where it's designed to actually walk you around to beautiful different aesthetic views, and it's completely laid out with the aesthetics in mind. Like, one of the onsens that we stayed at was uh, Takaragawa uh, Onsen, which is basically, it was I think maybe built back in it's pretty goddamn old so we were in these like the rooms with the classic sliding paper walls and the tatami mats and we were right over this rushing river so like the sound of the water came into the room and then there were these outdoor pools that were all staggered out and around the river itself so you could like sit out on these hot pools and look over the water and then look at the trees but everything was so cultivated so that like you would be in a pool and you would look and you would see like 
one of the lanterns during the day that you could then peer through and right behind it would be like a Buddha that was even further behind. Like there were all these points where you realize that the landscape has been carefully cultivated or parts mm-hmm. of it have. And that just ran all the way throughout. Like I took a lot of photos on my iPhone and there were so there were so many of the photos that really came out looking great. And it, that has nothing to do with me and everything to do with the fact that, you know, the iPhone's a pretty decent camera and the fact that the views from Japan were just amazing. Like they're literally designed to lay out the image before you. Like weirdly enough, I was, uh, we were in this one garden and I looked over and I'm like, you know, there's plaques and everything describing it. There was this gorgeous moon bridge. And I'm like, oh, my God, that is literally the moon bridge they must have used as the um, visual basis for the sequence in, is it Minutemen, the Morrison Quietly Multiversity issue? Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. Um, Pax, Pax Americana. Pax Americana. So in Pax Americana, there's that scene where Captain Adam is talking with the general and they're walking over the moon bridge and the water that reflects the bridge creates that perfect zero, you know, that runs throughout the whole, that runs throughout the, as a motif throughout the whole issue. Basically, I'm looking at it and I can see, I'm at the angle where it's like, and the, the, the water's perfectly reflected and I'm like, oh my God, that's it. I see the moon in the bridge and I snap this photo and it looks stunningly great. Um, so, so there's something about just the nature of the visual culture and I, to be a complete horse's ass, maybe think of, you know, because there's other Asian cultures that develop off of a similar pictographic language. Um, cause the Japanese took one of the basics from the Chinese language and then built their hiragana and katagana languages on top of it. But for whatever the reason, just an intensely visual culture, which I think is part of the reason why you end up with cutie mascots everywhere and then like comic books in the visual culture. So it was kind of for all those people who are kind of like really winsome about growing up and walking into their seven elevens and having there be comic books there. Like, going to Japan is great because, on the one hand, the Japanese have taken the convenience store and, as with so much else, like, turned it into an art. The, the, the konbinis, as they're, as they're known, um, are like 7-Eleven, Lawson Station, uh, I think it's Days News and, uh, Family Mart, which was my favorite. And each one of them, like, has like an ATM where you can take out money and allows you to like fax things and photocopy things. But there's also magazines. There's also fresh food. There's also, it's clean. It's, I don't know really quite how to describe it, but all the grunginess has been taken out of your usual mini mart. And it's, and instead what has been put in is like pure awesomeness. Like I would have died I literally would have starved to death because it was really hard finding Japanese food that was made without either pork or beef or chicken in the, at least in whatever soup stock would inevitably come with the meal. But at the, at the convenience stores, they would have fresh onigiri, which was the world's freshest rice packed with something. My go-to was tuna, 
Um, but there was also like salmon or like pickle roe or whatever. And then that's wrapped in seaweed and it's really affordably priced and it really, it really did keep me alive. But additionally, the manga, I mean, the thing that's crazy is I went there thinking like, okay, I'll try and get some manga and kind of idly hoping that I'd be able to put, pick up some GoGo 13 stuff. Now, Long-time listeners of the podcast and Graham know how horny I am for GoGo13, who is the enigmatic sniper anti-hero that has literally been running um, continuously in Japanese men's manga magazines for, no joke, 50 years now. But uh, I was kind of like, well, maybe I'll be lucky. Like, I had a little, like you know, wish list of things that I kind of wanted to do. And it was like, if I could find a volume of GoGo13 manga for sale in a convenience store, like not a specialty shop, but like an actual honest-to-God convenience store, I'll, I'll consider myself totally lucky. And Graham, let me tell you, there was a volume of GoGo13 manga in every convenience store I visited. <laughs> every single one. Like, some of the people, I, I have to say, I should have said this at the beginning, but um, friends of the podcast, uh, Miguel and Cormac, uh, both ended up being incredibly kind and generous with their time. Uh, Miguel, who uh, long-term listeners of the podcast know, uh, helped uh, well, helped, created uh, Watchmen 13 after listening to, to Graham and I blab about the possibility of such a thing. Um, Miguel lives in Osaka, and he and I had met up a few times before I made the trip, and he had generously invited me to to come to Osaka, and he would show me around. So that's where our trip started, and hanging out with him was absolutely fantastic. And Cormac... Uh, actually is a guy who listens to the podcast, who I follow on Twitter, and everyone should. I'll put a link to his, his Twitter account and Miguel's in the show notes. But I dropped Cormac a note pretty much out of the blue of like, hey, I'm going to be in uh, Tokyo, and I thought you were near here. Any chance you could hang out? And he was like, what? Yeah, okay, sure. So they were both great, and... I had a larger point about, oh yeah, I think one of them, I can't remember if it was Miguel or it was Cormac, I, it might have been Miguel, was like, I don't know who reads this series, I've never seen anyone, I've never met anyone, but perhaps because of that, GoGo13 was just, and, and maybe because it literally was the 50th anniversary, it was everywhere. Kind of in a way, sort of returning to our earlier point, one of the things that I did not realize, because I'm such a bad G13 scholar, is that Takeo Saito, who created GoGo13, more or less created his own studio to um, churn out these GoGo stories. Like, he hired people to do the, the research for his military and weapons research. He has writers who write the stories. Like, he draws the main figures, but other people do the backgrounds. But how much mm -hmm. he really draws has changed over time. Um, Saito is is apparently was such a savvy businessman that not only did he set up a studio like up front, like relatively early on, but he went on and opened his own uh, publishing arm to publish his own books, which 
you know, a lot of people, a lot, a lot of the manga dudes, the ones that are lucky enough to hit it big, still have to interact with their own publishers and publishers, and self-publishing is a real challenge for those of you who remember that that manga poverty book. That I, I was going to say, that's exactly what you're reminding me of. Yeah. Exactly, Saito. By um, the flip side of that, actually has Leeds Publishing, which is his own publishing arm, which churns out like a vast array of GoGo 13 reprints for not much money. Like, so, uh, basically, um, it's, it's more or less a hundred yen to a dollar, sort of. Like, with the exchange rate, the dollar is better. But if you can basically think about something here that costs a buck, think of it more or less costing a hundred yen there. So you could get in these convenience stores like a wide array of sort of like a big oversized GoGo 13 digest for like 798 yen that would have like four or five stories. And those stories would basically span like depending on how you got it, it would usually be like two stories from the 70s, two stories from the 90s and two stories from the early to mid 2000s. Right. For like eight bucks it's black and white and it's about the it's thicker than your average size of manga but it is but it's a full-size book and that was pretty great but then at a certain point i started running across these little gogo 13 digests which are smaller than say the archie or you know dc superhero digests that you saw at supermarkets but a lot thicker mm-hmm. like almost closer to like uh, a little larger than a uh, than a big little book, if you remember what those are. But sure, yeah, yeah. You know, those would be 333 yen. So, like, for $3.33, you'd get this little pocket book that you could slip in the back of your pocket. And again, it's like three or four stories, two of them from the 70s, you know, one from the 90s. And and some version, some variants of GoGo13 was just about everywhere. The few times I ended up going into actual bookstores or manga bookstores, it really blew my mind because, you know, I would go in in hunt of anything that I could read or recognize that I didn't have, which was part of why I was attracted to GoGo13. The the flip side of that is also GoGo13 is is a Every episode is more or less a done in one. So it makes it really easy for someone like me who doesn't read Japanese, especially some of the earlier stories where it's like GoGo13 flies into a city, you know, he screws a statuesque foreign woman, he gets into a fist fight and like kills five dudes and then he snipes someone and then he flies out on a jet while the woman cries, right? You know, it's kind of like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, you don't need to read Japanese to get the nuances of that. Sure, exactly. I get this. Yeah, yeah exactly. But, you know, the later stuff where it's like huge, in-depth, you know, military intel stuff or like... You know, just Tom Clancy-esque levels of of military jargonese as it's like dudes in Pentagon rooms, like, just exchanging massive amounts of recently declassified information. And then at the end of it, last four pages, you know, G13 steps in and snipes somebody. Not as much fun if you can't read Japanese, if you're essentially illiterate, but, you know, like any good illiterate, I was okay with the karate chopping and the and the nudity. <laughs> and um 
you know, it, so I've really that was kind of like I'm sticking to this as opposed to the more, you know, on top of it cerebral and or awesome stuff or even the comical gag manga cuz apart from like poop on a stick stuff, I would just it was going to I was going to miss the nuance. Um going into like a quote unquote like not a convenience store, but even the the two or three bookstores that I went into that had real manga sections like relatively developed manga sections like the gogo 13 stuff would start at collection number volume one and run down to collection volume number 163 like it was holy shit just absurd like this one character just had so much and again those are just the regular volumes before Saito starts differentiating out. In fact, one of the prized possessions of this collection was that I brought back from Japan is Gogo 13 for the Ladies Volume 2, which is apparently a, <laughs> a collection I oh picked up God. where I think he's trying to branch out and attract uh, the women readers. And it's, you know, Gogo 13 in a tuxedo with a gun and a woman drawn in the background. And I swear to God, Graham, you read those those. There's four stories in them. Two of them end up with Gogo 13 shooting his love interest. I'm like, yeah, I think you really gotta. I'm not sure if you like. Far be let's it for work me. on the for the ladies. Thing. Exactly. Yeah, I'm not sure you got a keen eye on the material. Admittedly, I don't know the culture, so maybe this is like gangbusters, and it could very well be Graham. Because let me tell you. So overall, uh, um, the thing that was interesting and great about uh, Japan for me is that being there was the last couple of years I've had this reoccurring fantasy of what if I could go back and and on go on a vacation in the year 1985 like I don't not, not going to buy Apple stock I'm not going to like you know bet on whatever sports team won that year or anything I just want to go back to 85 and not have to deal with with like cell phones, crazed bicyclists. The transit system worked a little bit better. Like like go and get some slightly better meals, you know, and just have it be quiet, right? Quiet when people were quieter and a little well behaved, better behaved. Being in Japan was like as close as I could get to that vacation. In fact. After talking to Miguel and Cormac, I'm half convinced that going on Japan was a little bit like going to vacation in America and kind of like an alternate version of the mid-70s because everyone, like if you are part of Japanese culture, there is rampant problems with like racism and sexual discrimination and sexual harassment in the workplace and uh, just incredibly like unhappy kids like i think tokyo's got like the third highest suicide percent uh, rates for youth in the entire world um but the because the society is very quietly collectivist like everyone is intensely nice and polite which is believe me what I needed a big old healthy dose of just being able to walk around on streets that were clean and not filled with crap or needles and people generally you're walking in thick crowds but everyone's making room for you you're not having to constantly 
ang- you know, figure out how you're going to get around the dude who's like talking on his phone with his headphones on and is also walking backwards because he's trying to find the location for his Uber to pick him up. Like, there's just none of that. Everyone's aware. Everyone that I, we dealt with, because of course I I managed to learn exactly four cent, four phrases in Japanese, but because one of them was excuse me, you know, uh, everyone was so incredibly nice and pleasant to us, and because so many people, it's just a that cultural standard being driven to, into everyone that that they have to do their jobs well. It's like even the food and crap restaurants was better. Like, and then it's being handed it to you by people who are nice and smiling at you. And it doesn't seem like that forced, rigorous smile, probably because God helped them. They, you know, had that part squeezed out of them when they were like 14 and it's been 10 years from now. And now it seems relatively normal to all involved. But, um, it was just, it was such a relief. It was such a relief to be in a country where people were looking out for everyone else and there wasn't the the same me first mentality, you know, especially mm-hmm. because America has cranked out the me first up to such, such a fever pitch. Um, it's been it's been weirdly hard coming back uh, to America, in part because I liked myself more in Japan. You know, and part of why I liked mm-hmm. myself more was I was trying to pay attention to the cultural values and be polite and let other people move in front of me and get in line. I mean, I'm I'm the sort of person that likes rules. I like I like following rules anyway. Nothing and nothing drives me more insane than when people cut in line uh, at the BART lines when you're trying to get home. And there's always some knob who thinks that this is a brilliant idea as opposed to everyone queuing up. And once the doors open and the people come out, it's a little bit of a free-for-all, but it's a free-for-all with a line attached to it, which means makes a huge difference to me. But also, I was going to say, that's not really a free-for-all. Then. It, no, it really it really isn't. What it is is a, it's a little bit rushed. I'm not sure I'd necessarily want to fall, and I was on some pretty tight... Um, uh, subways and escalators and things there was one point so there's shibuya crossing which is like the busiest crossing in the world you can go to youtube and you'll see the videos of it where it's like people stand there and everyone builds up because shibuya is like this i guess this big transition station to all this other stuff and um so you're standing there in what feels like Times square and it's all the lights basically let all the traffic through and then the traffic stops and the crosswalks, you can literally, you know, jaywalk, you can literally cross at the corners or you can go at a diagonal. And there's dozens and dozens and dozens of people there. I mean, it's hundreds at every light. And so it's kind of a like when you're going to Japan and you're looking up what to do, people are like, oh, you got to cross at Shibuya. It's it's insane. It's amazing. It's this amazing experience. So we had it on the list and our we were at Shibuya at one point actually to to meet up with Cormac and, and in order to find him and meet him we were kind of rushing and we basically did that intersection without really ever paying attention to it other than <laughs> it, it was mobbed um 
but then a few days later, it was Halloween and we were back in that district, in part because Shibuya has a huge Halloween celebration that's kind of like what the Castro used to be before uh, here in San Francisco, before it got shut down by by the San Francisco government for basically being too route, too out of control and too hard to for it to maintain safety. Shibuya is sort of having some of the same problems, although in Japan, a, a country with like such a crazily small crime rate, it was literally the sort of thing where it's like five people got arrested at Shibuya during the weekend Halloween gatherings, and, and it made all the news. Like people are like, "What are we going to do about this crazy outbreak of?" crime in Shibuya and I'm like it's five people and they were just arrested like you know they shut down Castro Street after like four people got shot never mind how many people like actually got arrested but anyway so once again we find ourselves at Shibuya at the crossing at dusk it's like Times Square there's these enormous like TV things blaring you know J-pop music out of the buildings and uh and the light changed, and Edie and I were crossing, and it was all these people in costume. And and I have a thing about crowds. Uh, I just, I don't like them. I really, like, another fun fact that I don't think I've ever really touched on in, in all of our years of podcasting was I, I actually worked as a, a bouncer in a bar in college, and I... The having on Friday and Saturday nights to do the crowd control maintenance and look out for people and throw people out and keep an eye as to people trying to walk into the bar with stuff and trying to walk out of the bar with stuff. I did it for basically two and a half, three years. And then when I quit, it was like, A, I'm never going into a bar again. And B, I just, I don't like crowds. But walking Mm -hmm. through Shibuya after having been in Japan for two and a half weeks at that point... And crossing with a bunch of people in costume, I, even though it was these enormous, super dense crowds, I didn't feel a single twinge of anxiety. It almost felt like swimming in an ocean or something at a level where you totally, where the water's warm and everything is placid. Like, I realized everyone was more like, no one was gonna bump into me, no one was gonna jump ahead of me. Like, everyone, like, everyone was going to behave in the crowd and I was also going to behave, which again, not usually a worry of mine. It it was weirdly safe. It was weirdly safe. It was this, it was being in the, in, in a enormous throng and feeling completely safe, which I have to say, sadly is not a feeling that I felt in 30 years, 30 plus years. So, that was that was incredibly special to me. That was a strangely special moment. And you know, hanging out with Miguel and Cormac, both of them, uh, Cormac came from Ireland to Japan in like 1990. And bless his heart, I want to say Miguel came from New Jersey to Japan in like 94. I'm sorry if I'm getting that wrong, Miguel, but listening to them talk the you know sort of these long time dudes who've lived in japan they both have wives they both have daughters they both have long established jobs and to have dinner with them each of them separately and have them both say that they that they've been there that long and they're still outsiders and they will always be outsiders and 
Um, each of them talk about the pluses of Japanese society, but also talk with a very clear eye about the costs of it. Um, I was really grateful for that so that I didn't walk out like 110% romancing the country. But Exactly. I'm going to move here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, oh, my God, there were ways in which I was like, eh, maybe I'll, you know, you retire, you're old, you sort of expect to be an outcast anyway. Maybe I'll just end up in Japan, you know, because at least it's that thing of like being an outsider in an incredibly pleasant, polite place. It seems so much better than being an insider in a place where I want to throw a hammer at half the people that are, you know, walking and actively cutting in front of me. That part was, that part was a little weird, but, but oh my God, for people who want to go, it's astounding. Every place has these ridiculous mascots, you know? Um, I went to, I went to Monterake was one of my last visits, which both Cormac and Miguel had told me that I should try and check out because it is a used manga store. It sells manga used. And each one, I I guess, I did I go to the one in Akihabara? I didn't. I went to the one in um, uh, Shinjuku, no, not Shinjuku, uh, Shibuya twice. It was like floor after floor of awesomeness like it just went on and on and on and of course there's self-published manga there's like old copies of like jump magazine from like the 80s you know and but the thing that drove me crazy was is like remember how i told you about like i was paying 333 yen for like these gogo 13 volumes that fit in my back pocket at at the mandarake they had those full-sized volumes like one through 158 the regular manga reprints each one of those was like a hundred yen a pop which was like a dollar and like down to like 80 cents or something 90 cents depending on the exchange rate so i'm incredibly lucky that i didn't buy another suitcase and fill it full of manga <laughs> to ship it back. I, uh, I have to say, when you said it was that cheap, I was like, how many did you buy? <laughs> I will repost the photo that I posted to Twitter, which admittedly was not the full pile because there was a bunch of uh, GoGo13 manga that I, I... The thing that's amazing is I walked out of uh, Mandarake having only spent the equivalent of about 30 bucks. Uh, and the majority of that were on, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, so like 3,000 yen. The majority of that were on 100 yen volumes of GoGo13. Crazily enough, um, uh, old, what's his name, the genius who does, uh, uh, Urosawa, who does um, 20th Century Boys and Pluto, his Billy Bat, there were like seven, eight volumes of that. And Billy Bat must have been incredibly like, oversold or didn't have much of a need. I couldn't find volume one, but I picked up volumes two and three for, again, a hundred yen. There was a GoGo 13 best of, like the 13 best stories is picked by the readers of GoGo 13. That was this ginormous volume. It looks like, it kind of looks like an enormous hotel Bible. Um, Actually, not a hotel Bible. It actually, I guess, looks a little close. Somewhere between the hotel Bible and the big-ass scary Bible they put in churches. Um, That had been, was on 
was in sale on sale in stores new i had already decided i was going to spend the 2000 yen and buy it mandarake had it for like 10000 yen and i was like oh my god how can i resist and it was it was really hard i had to keep to just the gogo Go 13 apart from the urasawa and one or two gifts i bought because at a certain point i just started looking and they would have these things of like Oh, here's, you know, they, they did the thing that comic stores will do where they bound up all the volumes and sell it to you in one cheap discounted price. So if I wanted to, I could have paid for the equivalent of like a small brick wall and gotten all of Slam Dunk for like, you know, 50, you know, 5,000 yen or something like that or all of Fist of the North Star or something like that. And the problem was like, I was like, well, that's great, but I kind of can't read Japanese. Like, the amount of stuff that I have for stuff that I still don't know how to read, like, I really am trying to figure out if my 2018 oath is going to be to try and learn how to read enough Japanese to at least make it through manga. I, I was going to say, mm-hmm. like, if you've bought all this stuff, are you not tempted to be like, okay, well, now maybe I have a good excuse to, to learn? Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I, I have a great excuse to learn. I really do. That and the fact that I was in this culture that, you know, that that's quiet conservatism, <laughs> grinding, gentle, you know, collectivist impulse so perfectly matches my own old, cranky old nerd need for, like, order and, and gentleness, you know, um... Yeah, I don't know. Uh, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. I could. I, it's like I'm like, yeah, I want to do that, but part of me is like, oof, I, grandma. I don't know if you know, but like Japanese, it's kind of funny. Again, talking with people, uh, Japanese. Is, <laughs> Japanese is not the earliest. It's not the easiest language to learn. Yeah, it's 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 tough. I mean, admittedly, people are like, oh yeah, once you get to the, I don't remember, it's the hiragana or the kitagana, but like, there's one, there's like. The version where the Japanese basically write stuff out phonetically is a lot easier. And frankly, so many Japanese readers, writers and readers rely on it because the the actual pictographic stuff that they inherited and modified from the Chinese, everyone seems to agree is kind of a nightmare. But it's, I don't know. Anyway, um, so yeah, it was an amazing time. If if you like Onigiri, if you like... um, you know, manga, if you like public transit, gorgeous views, and the fact that if you're willing to learn how to say, I'm so sorry, please excuse me, people will be like out of the world insanely nice to you. Um, just go to Japan. Seriously. I, I have to say, you are, um, I don't want to say like much more positive than I was expecting, mm-hmm. but it feels like it was, uh, uh, like a uh, spiritual is not the right word, but it was a positive experience on a level that I'm not sure I expected you to have experienced. Yeah, me neither. Like I, I feel like it, I feel like it was like a very fulfilling experience and very rewarding in the sense of, like you're saying, it, it sort of provided this emotional experience mm-hmm. that you were looking for and also didn't necessarily think was possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think I think that's actually a really good way to sum it up. And I do want to, of course, caution because again, I had some very, um, 
you know, keen, gimlet-eyed companionship. Like, it does not mean that uh, I want to move there and <laughs> and start working, you know, because it sounds like the Japanese workplace has any number of kind of nightmares, you know. It's like, like, I'm not that much of a... I'm not that crazy about, you know, bureaucracy and, you know, senior worship, I guess, you know, in terms of employee status and things. But, uh, but yeah, no, I went there. I was kind of like, oh, it'll be nice and the weather will be good and I'll get to see, you know, get to see some cool stuff and maybe I'll get to some manga, you know, and I'll get to see Miguel. And as it turned out, Cormac, but instead it was just like, you would get up and we would have a list of things that we would get to do. We would try to go do. And each one seemed just a little bit better than we'd expected. And I think that's it. That's kind of the combination. There was only two real incidents that really disappointed in Japan, but. But you were there for like three weeks. That's amazing. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. And the rest of them were astounding. At one point, you know, we were like, well, what are we going to do today in Osaka? And, you know, I mentioned to Miguel, I'm like, everyone's saying that we should go to the aquarium. He's like, you know, Osaka really does have a pretty good aquarium. And I'm like, oh, okay. So we, you know, we took the train down. You know, I say take the train down. It was it was only like 20 or 30 minutes by public transit. We get off and we go to the aquarium, and it was mind-blowingly good. That was amazing. I don't even really care. As you know, I eat fish, so I can't care that much about them. But, like, holy God, it was it was a stunning display and just just put together amazingly well and we spent hours there and um yeah just the number of times that experience happened to us but multiplied like that really was it was it we really walked back being like oh my god that was fantastic i i would gladly do it again and that was me saying that despite the fact that i caught a cold like five days before we were supposed to come back. So I was congested on the 11 hour flight back. So I came home, (laughs) not only jet lagged, but deaf in one ear for like 36 hours. Um, and then to follow, you you did not seem to be having a good reentry. Yeah. The reentry was super, super, super rough. I developed these cold sores along my nose that then apparently got infected. My nose looked like this horrific pile of carbuncles that were just like weep, literally weeping. And I'm like, I've got to go back to work tomorrow like this. In fact, last week, not at this time, but like uh, about 12 hours or so from now, uh, a week ago, you see how good I am with chronological time. Uh, yes. I ended up, that's the way it works though, Jeff. Yeah, exactly. I ended up having to get prescriptions you know, we had, we ended up not being able to run errands because once again, I had a medical emergency that consisted of me being put on an antiviral and an antibiotic just so that my nose wouldn't look like, um, you know, a tomato that someone had thrown against W.C. Fields' own more horrific nose. Like, it was bad. It was so bad. And then, you know, I thank God work was quiet because the 16 hour time change meant that when I woke up at 8 a.m., it was like midnight in Japan. And it took us two or three days to get used to that schedule when we were in Japan. But coming back, I'm only now I I, want to say that like Friday was the first day that I felt like a human being. So, of course, my kidneys tried to kill me, you know, so 
it's it's your body's way of saying no just go back <laughs> just, just go back <laughs> go back back well you're getting so like this didn't happen in japan did it no you no know, well honestly it would not surprise me if like the tests of if the kidney stone ever comes out and we can get it tested they were like were you eating a lot of fried food and white rice and i'm like that was pretty much all i ate in japan like we were so desperate for salads and fresh. That is the problem is, is that as great as it was and everyone's like, Oh, the food is great. And we had some amazing meals. Don't get me wrong. Um, the ability in San Francisco's and California to, in my case, like literally run right across the street and buy fresh organic fruit and not have that cost. I mean, it's pricey, but like in Japan, at one point we were so desperate for fruit, we literally paid the equivalent of like four dollars for no joke, like eight grapes that came like wow. they were big grapes, but they like came in a in a plastic cup that was sealed and taped up, and we were like, maybe it was ten grapes, but I mean they were good, but we were so desperate for like fresh fruits or vegetables and of course they're like oh sure vegetables here have an utterly tasteless squash Ugh. oh don't like it why don't you try some incredibly pickled like bitter root like ugh. oh you don't like that well hold on a second i think if we dig around here here is like a potato paste that even we can't eat so we like <laughs> pound it out into fresh sheets and then we freeze it and then convince ourselves that we're eating mountain sashimi have some of that Blah. you know if it wasn't for hot wow. mustard and kewpie mayo i don't think i would have lived so the uh, food was one of the things I was curious about. The other thing I'm super curious about is something you and I talked about before you went, which was you were um, afraid is possibly not the right word. You were concerned about the language barrier, not so much in the spoken element, but I remember we talked about the fact that you like would feel completely uh, adrift without like the signs making sense yeah yeah, yeah like yeah. like the written element of language that right. was something that that like you were genuinely concerned about i remember talking yeah, about that i really that. was what, uh, yeah. what was that like in practice uh well that's a good question um one of the things that really helped were and it was really fun listening to again some old timers complain about how easy us new time travelers to japan have it uh, because, you know, when people like Cormac and uh, Miguel were coming to Japan, like there weren't really signs in English and but hardly anyone spoke the English language. A lot of places where we went, people spoke English, which was fabulous. The thing that I was super one of the things that I tried to compensate for the depths of my ignorance were a. Um, I paid the money to get a Wi-Fi hotspot that traveled with us because I had Miguel had recommended that and it was a great it was a great solution. Like we were in every different element and we always had incredibly strong Wi-Fi for our phones. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was able to use like a plethora of apps. Uh, there's an app Hyperdia that I used a lot that is has a 
a website analog. I paid for the app, which a lot of people thought was foolish. And Hyperdia basically allows you to input the name of any two trace two stations and tell you the best way to get between them. It's specifically set up for Japan traveling um, in by public transit in Japan. Uh, Google Translate, the app, helped a lot for me um, in terms of what you could do is take a photo in the app and, and then have it translate all the Japanese into English to the extent that it understood it. And there were times that that was incredibly helpful and magical, and there were times where it was just saying things like, flummox me twice, you ego. Like, I'm like, okay, that's not going to help me at all. But... Um, and then, and then because we had the phones, uh, the maps on our iPhones worked incredibly well, except with this huge asterisk. So a lot of times I couldn't see the street signs. I just literally had to go by, this is where the blue ball says that I'm on the map. This is the stores that it says are around me. This is, you know, how I'm supposed to proceed. On the streets sometimes, more often than not, this, it was particularly in Tokyo, what was rough was I would step out of a station and the ball would tell me I was in one place. And then as I was sitting there looking at it, it would mo- float over a block and then float back. And then oh, man. one of the things is if I tried to zoom in and see, you know, do that thing of like, what the what direction does the phone say that I'm literally looking in now? would not always be accurate. And finally, the the one that was tough is it would talk about these store landmarks. Like we're like, oh, we're right across from a Starbucks. And I would look and there would be no Starbucks. And part of the problem is, is that Japanese cities, I guess generally, but especially Tokyo, are so dense that every building has shops for like on four floors and sort of from the front to the back of the building. So it would tell me like you're walking and you're in a hurry and you're trying to find landscapes. And I literally could not like, like I couldn't find any landmarks to be able to orient myself. And sometimes that was because what it told me was a Starbucks. I couldn't see a ground level because it was on the third floor and I wasn't looking up, I realized later. And sometimes it was because it was telling me I was on a block when I was literally one block over. And so it was and then I'd watch the ball float and I would be like, you son of a bitch. On top of that, a lot of subway stations, uh, the bigger subway stations have shopping centers built on top of them. So the maps are so dense. And again, 2D when they should be 3D, that it was really hard. I swear to God, we stayed for our first stay in Tokyo. We stayed three nights in Shinjuku. And I swear to God, Graham, I, it was not like the last day that I was able to get out of Shinjuku station like on my own. Every other time, the station was so goddamn big. If I ended up on the west side and our hotel was on the east side, I would despair. It once took me 45 minutes to get from one side of the station to the next just because 
it kept being so goddamn labyrinthine. Like, I'd start to walk through it, and it would say, like, Shinjuku this way, Shinjuku hotels. And I'm like, great. And then, but it wasn't really talking about my Shinjuku hotels. It was talking about the Shinjuku hotels over by the Tokyo Metropolitan Government Building. So it would walk me so far out of my way, and then I'd catch up, turn around, come back, start to cut back, and then go down the same variant of the same goddamn tunnel that they would have 600 yards away for some reason that would then hook back with the first tunnel. It was unbelievable. I literally, I, I, I really want to pitch 2000 AD with a story about <laughs> a subway station that becomes so dense it essentially becomes like a, a, a transit black hole and nothing can escape from it because that's really how it felt after my second day of just about literally being unable to escape from Shinjuku. Jeff, all I'm saying is that is your Tharks Future Shock right there. Yeah, I think so. If I can just polish it up, if I can figure out the right, you know, I've got the hook. I just have to figure out where to take it and turn it into five pages and send it to Tharg right now. Exactly, man. I'm telling you. Because I really did have that thing of like, I am, I'm stuck in like a bad 2000 AD future shock. I'm never getting out of this subway station. So, uh, but, but Shinjuku aside, which was a shame because I was there for like three days, once I got out of the stations and I was a block away, everything would click into place. In part because there were enough landmarks that I could navigate by that, but it, it was tough. And there were a few times where we caught um, people who didn't speak enough English and I had a translation app where I could say things and it would translate into um, Japanese and in fact in theory if they were willing they could push the button and speak into Japanese and it would translate it into English but most people were like a little too skittish to do that understandably but sure. I had a couple of like I had an all purpose Japanese I'm sorry but I don't eat you know, chicken or beef or pork. Is there anything on the menu that I can eat? And they would, they would point things out, which was great. And a lot of restaurants had an English menu anyway. In fact, one of the things that was super charming was the times where we went into a Starbucks. Um, like the people very nicely brought out the English menu for us to order off of. And we're like, it's Starbucks. Come on. Like we can, we can order this. <laughs> we, we can do Starbucks. We can do Starbucks in our sleep. Like, right. A grande Frappuccino. You guys didn't come up with a weird name for that, right? It's pretty easy. So, but then of course you want to try and tell them that you want to get your sweet, your American style, sweet yam biscuit warmed up, you know, and also that, in America, we don't have sweet yam biscuits, but, you know, you just... I was going to say, tell me more about this American-style sweet yam biscuits. Yeah, it was kind of great. The Japanese had these, uh, particularly, again, Starbucks and the McDonald's. The McDonald's generally stuck to the American menu, and they didn't really, you know, I should say McDonald's is McDonald's. So they had a few regional variants, which is to say the McDonald's shrimp sandwich was insanely good. Oh my God, Graham. But like the Starbucks had lots of American style stuff that was like, that is not America. The, I think what they meant was they had these biscuits, right? And they're like, oh, they're like American style biscuits and true to form. 
their buttermilk biscuit was great and much better than the baked goods you get at most Starbucks. They would heat it up, they give it to you with a little bit of butter, and Edie would get that. So that was the American biscuit, but then the other biscuits are, of course, made to Japanese taste. So it's like, here, have a, have a, have a yam biscuit, have the eggplant, the American eggplant biscuit, and you're just like, there's there's nothing American about this. There is not. I don't know what shorthand you you know premature death. I'm assuming is what you mean when you say American. But technically, that is not that's not American. You know, they're like sure everyone in America has got a Nunagi biscuit breakfast sandwich, right? It's like n- nearly no one, nearly no one. I assure you. Anyway, so it was a good thing I didn't understand, I, I couldn't speak the language, so that I couldn't say shit like that to people who are just like, please, just leave me alone and order your sandwich, you know. But I'm too nice to tell you. Oh, one thing I will tell you, Graham, because there is a thing. We thought that we would get a lot of soft no's, and we barely got them. Um, uh, and Wait, wait, what do you mean soft no's? Exactly. A soft no is because... Uh, Japanese culture is really polite. When you when you ask, sometimes you'll ask something and they don't want to tell you no because it feels like it reflects poorly on them as like a host or something like that. So instead of saying no, they'll be like, well, maybe it would be better if, you know. So so the first onsen, Taka, Taka Gugawa, ah, Takaragawa, that we were staying at, like I said, beautiful, had been open, God, I think, like I said, since the 40s, 50s, it was old, and it smelled old, bless its heart, beautiful wood, polished wood floors in the hall, and of course, you come in, and the first thing they do is literally take away your shoes, all but at gunpoint, and they give you a pair of sandals, and they give you a yukata that you're expected to wear while you're out on the grounds, so... Uh, Edie and I were walking around in the Japanese, you know, uh, yukatas with the obis, the sashes tied around us, and the sandals, mm-hmm. right? But the two things that rapidly confused us were, um, and I'll do them in reverse order. A, when we were looking at maps of the onsen, it would it would be like this roughly illustrated map, and it was like, oh, here's the main building, here's the second building, here's the east annex, got it, here's the suspension bridge where we walk across, okay, here's the first hot pool, there's the second hot pool, there across the other suspension bridge is the third hot pool, okay, got it. What's up with this cage with a bear in it? And we're like, admittedly, Takaragawa had a lot of stuff about bears, like when we were looking at it, like driving in because the we took the bullet train to a station and then the shuttle picked us up and drove us like 40 minutes into the forest. There were all these like bear shrines and bear stuff and bear statues and something when you go through the rustic little you know one stoplight towns there would be places that would be called like bear tavern you know and you're like huh what i guess they're into the bears here is it like a guardian or are there people just eating bears eat how likely are we to get eaten by a bear so we show up at this place and there's like you know illustrations of bears on like some of the promotional materials and there's this image of this bear in a cage and so we're like is that a metaphorical bear and so we're walking along on the map and we find this like empty 
abandoned cage. Like it's like a wooden sort of bamboo cage number by the side of this path. And we're like, what's, so anyway, so flash forward to, oh, sorry. The other thing that we couldn't figure out is we're already wearing sandals and the onsen that we were in, we had to, uh, like a public bathroom. So you go mm-hmm. down the hall to the public bathroom, you slide the cool paper door aside and there are more sandals, like these red sandals. They're the bathroom sandals, Jeff. Exactly, Graham. I'm like, are there bathroom sandals? Do we have to switch into the bathroom sandals to go to the bathroom and why so anyway we made the mistake of going to the front counter and getting uh the manager or one of the managers who was this sort of oldish guy by which i say who's probably only about 10 or 12 years younger than me and being fit and being japanese looked about 10 years younger than me uh he you know wearing sort of glasses looked very avuncular and he was like, his English was like a little tough, but he was among the English speaker, the better English speakers on staff. He was like, uh, can, can I help you? And, and I was like, uh, yeah, we just, we just had two questions. He's like, yes. I'm like, uh, there are sandals in the bathroom. He's like, yes. I'm like, do you Why? want us to use those? <laughs> He's like, Yes. I'm like, but we already have sandals. He's like, yes, you do. I'm like, so you want us to use the sandals, the bathroom sandals in the bathroom? And he said, and he says in this perfect, if you wanted to do it in the Japanese style, which is this great, like, <laughs> oh, that's sort of our like, soft the- no. That's our, like, he's not going to tell me what to do, but like, stop being an American dick and put on the fucking bathroom sandals, you asshole. And I'm like, oh, okay, great. Thank you. I said, also, we wanted to ask you, we keep looking at the maps, and there's this, they keep showing this cage with a bear, and he just cuts me off and he goes, there's no longer a bear. And then walks off. Wow. And we were like, what? happened with the fucking bear this must have yeah, been we a don't, story we don't talk about the bear anymore exactly that was so much there's no longer a bear so so Graham they have a gift shop that it that was open like maybe two and a half hours a day and of course I was obsessed with this gift shop because it was just about the only place you could get snacks the vending machines were great but at a certain point you can only have so much coca-cola or water, or Pokari sweat, or if you're lucky, corn soup, which, spoilers, I did not have the corn soup. Uh, so I'm in the gift shop, and I'm looking among all the, because, you know, it's a very big thing. You go to a place like this, you get gifts, and you come back and bring them to every, everyone else. So lots of bags of, like, candy day corns and, you know, unappealing jellies and, you know, candies that are both somehow too sweet and and kind of too bitter at the same time. And right above them all are these two amazing posters clearly shot from like 1976. Like, honestly, I don't know how, but you know how when you look at the, you can just tell the Kodak photo stock was exactly the same photo stock that the photographer who shot the stills for Live and Let Die, you know, used. (laughs) Like, you can just tell that it's like that stock. And I, 
And I swear to God, Graham, one of the two of the photos, one the best photo. I don't even remember the other photo because the second photo was so brilliant. This poster, I, it was everything I could do not to buy it. Shows two topless Japanese women bathing in the springs with a bear cub, and there's a dude who's holding up this bear cub. And I swear to God, the cub looks like it's about to maul someone's breast. Like it's like that moment of absolute beauty right before it turns also horribly wrong and Graham I swear to God I know it's my imagination but that the guy in the water looked exactly like the guy who like told us that there was no you know there wasn't a bear anymore and walked quickly out of the room I'm like oh my God he was in the photo with him this has been his job for the last 30 years one of his first jobs was like actually getting in the bath with the bear and the two topless women and taking the promotional poster for this onsen oh Anyway, so that, that was our soft no. It was great. I honestly don't know what to say about that, but I love that story so much. I don't. I'm not quite sure I fully understand that story. Yeah, but I love that story so much. <laughs> Jeff, I love that you like talked at length about like it was so calming and everyone was so respectful, and you know this this was the the I, I hesitate to say Zen for like entirely stereotypical reasons but like you know this was the the, the experience i'd be looking for that that really allowed me to center myself mm-hmm. you talk about that for like you know half an hour and then you're like and then this fucking bear <laughs> and, it's to, and it's the dude who said there's no bear <laughs> i'm like wait this is the same trip what <laughs> it was a, it was a multifaceted trip Graham. i can't tell you how incredibly oh multifaceted God. it was so uh yeah yeah it was it was it was an amazing time. Um I I love that so so much. I can't even tell you. <laughs> so it's been a little over 2 hours. Yeah. I, I was going to say I think it's time to wrap it up. I think we should end on that spectacular story. <laughs> okay. All right, I think that's fair. I really do think that's fair because otherwise, thank you for everyone who's who managed to make it uh, far enough. Uh, I will try and pepper the show notes with some links. God help me, I haven't tried looking for that photo, but if I can find it, you can. I was going to say that you have photographs you can share, right? Or I or do not. I do. I, I do have. And a yeah. part of me, part of me is asking because I'm like. Uh, is, is this one of these things where, like, no one actually takes photographs when they travel anymore, and I'm just really old? <laughs> no, no. You know the thing that's crazy is I didn't, tr- I didn't take a lot. Of, at first, I didn't take a lot of photos because I'm sort of the person who likes to try and be in the moment. But like, there were so many shots in Japan where it was like, this is so beautiful. I've, I literally can't help but take my camera out. Like I said, the Moon Bridge and a few other things where I was just like. I mean, I say a few. That I took more photos on this trip than I have on any other trip, hands down. And I won't bury everyone alive, but I will try and throw a couple of, of select ones there. Even if it's just me. I, look, I am here for your uh, your slideshow. I appreciate that, it. That, look, you should just put that up in the Patreon. One hundred percent. You should put that up at the Patreon, Jeff. Jeff, you know what I've just realized? We're going to like hit weird static in like ten minutes or so. Yeah, yeah. Should we run like the end of the, the show super quickly so we don't do that? I think so. I think so. Because I just said Patreon, and I was like, wait, wait. Right. Um, it's been so long since we've done this. <laughs> I've honestly forgotten how we do it. 
Oh my god, it, it's it's just like riding a bike, I've heard. Um, we're going to be back next week with the Baxter Building. That's correct. Uh, where we're going to be covering issues 397 through 405 of the Fantastic Four series, which brings us like within a year of the end of... No, just over a year from the end of that series, Jeff. Oh my god. We're not prepared. Um, at some point in the next couple of weeks for Patreon people also, I will get the second of the new Baxter bungalows up as well, where I talk about Fantastic Force, which I've now read in its entirety, and that is certainly a comics that exists. <laughs> I will say no more than that. I, I had surprisingly complicated feelings about Fantastic Four. Really? <laughs> I will get into. Suffice to say, I might do... I'm definitely going to do more than one episode on Fantastic Force. I may end up doing three. Holy shit, Graham. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it's it's really... Oh, Jeff, just wait. Um, anyway, that's next week. Back to uh, building next week. In the meantime, we have an Instagram at instagram.com forward slash waitwhatpod. We have a Tumblr at waitwhatpod.tumblr.com. We have a Twitter account at waitwhatpodcasts. Jeff has a Twitter account solo at lazybastid at L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. I have a Twitter account at Graham M at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. And we have a Patreon, which Jeff, I don't know if you remember what you said when I'd say that, but go try and recreate the dream. Didn't I say, like, I thought it was pronounced Patreon? Oh, it is! <laughs> maybe it's not! You keep saying Patreon. I'm like, oh, maybe something's changed. I think you're right. I think I... Patreons? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Uh, uh, you know what? Honestly, everyone, thank you. I really hope you made it to the end of this podcast, because I sort of feel between the... Um, the, the listening to Jeff talk too much in the opening uh, and then listening to Jeff talk too much at the close. I think I'm hoping that you, like me, will come back next yeah. week. P- people tune talk. in for you. No, no, people tune in for you. And I personally have fucking loved it. <laughs> I, well, I'm glad you have enjoyed it. But believe me, I will work on I will work on Mr. McMillan uh, to make sure that he gives us gives us the whole what for both on the Baxter building next week and uh, the wait what for the wait what for genius just genius so uh, everyone thank you thank you uh, all of our listeners and thank you to the wonderful group of people on Patreon who throw us a little bit of um, ducats to keep us uh, uh, surprised and engaged and able to pick up copious amounts of um Manga, convenience store manga, uh, including the kind crew at American Ninth Art Studios and Amer- Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy. Um, we are especially grateful to them for their continuing support of this podcast, for their non-destruction of this spiral rim of our galaxy, and for um, you know making sure that Japan continues to exist because it's a hell of a thing. Graham. I think that's a wonderful place to leave it. Uh, we'll be back next week for a Baxter building. We we wrap this up super quickly. Jeff, it's almost like we've been doing this for years and years and years and years before we took a month off. Why not? I'm really glad we're back. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> yes, Graham. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Still haven't been around long enough not to get faked out by Graham, though. Oh, man.